This is Janine Hayes and Brian Mason of AfroChic, and you're joining us for One Story Up, a celebration of the culture of the African diaspora and the stories that create it. Each month, we sit down with creatives, innovators, and tastemakers from a variety of different disciplines to highlight the intersection and overlap of these fields while elevating and expanding our notion of Black culture, one story at a time. Today, we're in Brooklyn, New York, sitting down with Rashad Frazier, chef and founder of Yoshi Jenkins, a food concept that explores African-American and Japanese fusion. Yeah. Welcome, hey, welcome. what up, what up, what up? <laughs> All right. So I was thinking the other day, back to how we met. Yes. And I actually couldn't remember. Because I'm so I glad because like we... I thought I was the only one that couldn't remember. Actually, like... that's a great question. I actually know of two, it was two, two uh, incident, instances when we met. First time was working as an intern for the New York City Economic Development Corporation. Was that how we met? Yeah, right. yeah. You were referred to me by I want to say Mulaney. Okay, possibly. Yeah. And at the time, I guess you had just relocated here from San Francisco. Yeah. And you were launching Afro Chic. You were trying to do something around a gathering. wasn't what we eventually ended up doing, but I think you were trying to put together some type of like just cultural experience at the at your crib or just something in general. But literally, I was a struggling intern, making no money. And I was like, this is great. I got my little blog going, you know, my first opportunity. And I think it went silent for like six months to a year. Really? I was like, dang, you know, like I thought this is going to be hopeful. But the reality is it ended up working out even better because down the road, yeah. you guys invited me to do the dinner party for the launch of you guys' first products. Yes. Yeah, oh, my gosh. Okay. I can't well, even yeah, believe yeah, that. I don't yeah. even think that we knew that or even remembered. No, yeah, I, I it was it was literally like a five-minute conversation on the phone. I was literally taking like a bathroom break. I was like, okay, I'm going to have this call real quick. It's a big meeting. We're going to talk about details. It's like, yeah, we'll get back to you when you get a chance to talk more. But anyway, it worked out even better. Um, the event we ended up doing together was amazing. My first dinner party ever. It was at Oda Babel, mm-hmm. which yep. was great. Um, beautiful setup. You guys, the decor-wise the, the was, 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 was spot on. Um, Honestly, it was a nice like thrusting in just the food world. Yeah, you know? and now I mean your family. I mean, yeah, we, yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Together, I, I knew nothing. Yeah. Then I was like, oh my god, they're taking a shot of me. You know, I hope this this pans out the way we wanted to. But it was a great night, great evening. The energy was amazing, and here we are today. Yeah, yeah. No, the food we eat together all the time. We miss yeah, you because you moved to Portland. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we miss the food. We miss you coming over for what we like to call I know. food and fellowship. I know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where you know, man, you just just bring the new recipes and let us taste them and yeah. i had to like explain to my mom i was like oh yeah rashad comes over and like just test these these re- recipes and she's like why does he do this <laughs> <laughs> you guys are like my guinea pig slash family slash proving ground i mean instead of bringing it to market first come to you guys house yeah. no we it's been that. a lot of fun because yeah. we've you know we used to do uh the afro sheet kitchen we yep. come and like you know get some behind the scenes video of yep. you yep. making it happen in the kitchen just kind of hang out chop it up yes um and so we've gotten to kind of go along with you on your food journey yep. especially as you've come to where you are now with this amazing concept of Yoshi Jenkins. So, I mean, take us through that a little bit. Tell us a little bit, like, who is Yoshi? Yeah, I mean, honestly, this was a concept we came up with some years ago, but it was kind of just tabled until we could kind of figure out what direction we wanted to go with it. The story was always, I mean, being from North Carolina, being from a small city like Charlotte back in the day, it literally was either you were eating, you know, Chinese food, soul food, or some type of spin-off of Italian food. There really was no nuance or diverse options beyond that. The idea of Japanese food was sushi, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think coming to New York City, it really opened up my entire, like, crayon box as far as what's out there, what could be done, what the possibilities are. Um, for me, Yoshi represents community. It represents the idea of intersection of diverse cultures, 
Um, it was researched more about the intersection of just African African American or just black black folks in the Japanese community. You think about overseas, you think about uh, Brazil, you think about um, uh, even Peru as far as different like intersections. But in the 1940s, um, a black community popped up called Bronzeville, mm. which uh, a lot of folks think about Bronzeville, they think about Chicago, but there was a Bronzeville actually in Los Angeles. And Bronzeville was literally, um, I don't know, at the time a lot was going on. So literally you had the war going on, World War II, yeah. um, FDR, Franklin D. Roosevelt, sent uh, Japanese Americans to internment camps. Mm. So you had this little Tokyo community that was this thriving, beautiful community neighborhood, wiped out, not wiped out, but literally like displaced individuals, gone overnight. Wow. And then at the same time, you have Jim Crow South going on, the civil rights, not civil rights, but Jim Crow South. You have, um, you know, people looking for jobs. The war effort needs labor, you know. So literally you have a lot of black folks literally migrating from the deep South out West for the quote-unquote American dream. Yeah, opportunity. Yeah, opportunity. Right. So as they arrive to L.A., they get hit with institutional racism in the form of real estate and housing. Where do we stay? Where do we go? Um, you know, racial uh, housing covenants were even worse back then to where even though they weren't racist per se, they didn't want you in their neighborhood. So by default, where do all these people go to stay? Mm-hmm. They had this huge, huge, huge vacancy uh, situation in Little Tokyo, and the landlords, they were like, look, come here. I need rent. I need houses. Here we go. So it literally overnight, you have this huge intersection of Japanese Americans being pushed in internment camps, African Americans being moved out to LA looking for housing, and they end up all kind of coming at the same time. So one group is leaving, another group is arriving, and it becomes what we know today as Bronzeville wow. for a very short four to five year window. But in its in its in its time, it was literally like a rocking. In the words of, of a few writers, it literally was. Um, as bright as neon lights, but as uh, as short as uh, skywriting. How know? did you find out about all of this? Honestly, just research. Uh, I was trying to just find details and stories about just the intersection of black culture and Japanese culture. You know, it's easy to say as far as growing up, you know, between manga films, anime, uh, hip hop. Just there's obviously a lot of um, interest there on both sides. Um, I've always been fascinated by how Japanese culture has been able to really um, – copy but not just copy but take american or western culture and do it better mm. think about denim burgers bourbon um you think about even hip-hop in some ways you know like they've been able to really master things that we call american culture in their own way mm-hmm. um in some ways being even more imaginative uh, imaginative in terms of what it could be and the possibilities where it's always almost something new mm. and even with black culture i feel like uh, and brian can speak to this the idea of enculturation you know and then being able, us being able to really kind of take concepts that were you know given to us as far as being in a new world and a new place around different new cultures and taking them and making them our, making them our own. So think about jazz, think about uh, dance, you think about science, you think about uh, cooking. We literally took something that wasn't even ours and made it even better in yeah. a lot of ways. So I think we share that a lot. But just doing more and more digging, man, you find out that this place existed, um, even though there was obviously a window of time where there was mostly uh, African Americans in this community during Bronzeville's heyday, even after. Uh, it was dismantled due to, you know, Japanese folks being allowed to come back, uh, internment, internment camps being closed. Um, eventually, um, a lot of Japanese businessmen were able to kind of get back their property, mm-hmm. reclaim their leases. Um, also, at the time, um, uh, those racial housing covenants that uh, kept a lot of us in certain communities led us to kind of, you know, once it was once it was uh, ended, allowed us to kind of go out to other areas as well. 
So think about, you know, you're in this one area, that's all the option you have. And then eventually they say, you know what? I'm giving you guys a chance to go and live somewhere else. Yeah. By the time that happened, folks were like, well, I'm ready to kind of live somewhere else anyway, because it was already kind of cramped and tight. Look about Harlem back in like the 40s, 50s, and 60s. You know, that was pretty much the only place we really could go. So think about how dense and how just overrun it might be, having 80,000 people on like four block span. That could be a lot of uh, activity. Yeah. Um, but it seems like for the time, like while they were there, there was actually a, a pretty close-knit relationship between the communities. I'm yes. Like, so it seems like, you know, for us, you know, today looking back, yeah. the way we typically see the relationship between African-American and Asian-American communities is not nearly that close, especially since the advent of things like a uh, the model minority concept, things like that, these wedges that right. seem to drive these right, communities right, apart. Right. So it's really interesting to not only know that there was a point in American history where these two communities we're not only closer, but mm-hmm. live together and relied on one another. So, like, I've seen, like, since you kind of peeped me to the Bronzeville yeah, concept, yeah. I've been looking into, uh, you know, like, some of the jazz shows that took place right, out there. Right, right, some right. of the music that went on, you know, like, you yeah. know, sushi houses that yeah. had live jazz. Charlie Parker, like you know, like, he literally ran the show yeah, there. Yeah, like, I mean, it was a huge happened. intersection of this diversity. Um, folks don't talk about the negative, but honestly, there was way more empathy and more way more synergy than what people want lead to on, lead on to believe mm-hmm. as far as what happened there. Um, I get excited about it just in the sense of Bronzeville or Tokyo represents communities all over the world. You think mm-hmm. about what's happening in, Bro- in Brooklyn as far as the diverse communities being broken up, but when they're actually kind of coexist and manifest, you see all types of amazing new ideas popping up, whether it be food and jazz and just design or whatever you, what, what may have you. I mean, even when the Japanese community came back, it wasn't a complete like dismantling of the neighborhood. Literally, there was synergy and overlap still working together, you know, between businesses collaborating, um, Japanese Americans helping other folks find housing, um, you know, black businesses that were trying to hire Japanese Americans, and even building community and culture together. So, you know, it's easy for folks to kind of just uh, write off things as far as being temporary or wasn't as as in- intricate as people lead on. I don't believe that at all. I think history shows us that this community. Uh, despite all the forces that led to its, you know, challenges as far as racism, institutional, uh, institutional racism, the war, uh, bigotry, they were still able to thrive in their own way. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting article I read too about how, even though it's listed as more of a black community, literally it was like um, a calling card or a, a symbol for all di- for diversity beyond just those two groups. White folks were coming down there to hang out, you know, mm-hmm. party. Most of Hollywood scarlets were coming out there as well to hang out and go to some of these jazz clubs. It was almost like, um, at the time, probably white folks' biggest fear when it comes to like what communities could look like, you know, in terms of just uh, races coming together and just having a, you know, finding finding their own idea what community is. Did, um, did they share a food culture? Did you or did your research kind of uncover that, <clears throat> or that sort of just something that you wanted to yeah. use as history to create? I couldn't find anything that that gave me like formal, you know, stories around sharing food culture. I will say that. The story in itself inspired me to create Yoshi Jing is based on the idea of the possibilities of what happens when you bring bring diverse groups together. You know, what could what what what, what could become of that? What can happen? Um, what would it what would it look like if they were eating or had a restaurant together? What would it look like if they had a I don't know, um, a library together in terms of the kind of books they sold? What would coffee shops look like? You know, just to help you I wanted to imagine what it would feel like and taste like to have a neighborhood like that thrive beyond just the window of time it had. Wow. Um, yeah. You're from North Carolina. Yes. You mentioned that a little bit, but does mm. North Carolina find its way into the concept at all? Yeah, absolutely. So being from North Carolina, you know, I'm 37 years old. Well, actually 38, I'm sorry. 
And being a thirty-year-old man, it was not hard for me to hear more stories from my grandparents, great aunties about them migrating to different cities to find jobs and escape Jim Crow. I know they brought a lot of their traditions and cultures with them when they would go to these places. So it wasn't hard for me to imagine, you know, an auntie or uncle going further out west to LA, you know, and going out there and launching her recipes around making like, you know, okra perlu or doing barbecue or whatever it is that obviously they wanted to, you know, make money around per se, you know, fried fish sandwiches, just things that we all traditionally maybe took for granted growing up. But if you're moving to a new city, knowing no one, trying to start from scratch, maybe not having that many skills that apply to finding a job immediately, you're going to hustle. And your hustle might be in the form of what you knew growing up. So for me, you know, whether you're coming from Texas or Mississippi or New Orleans, you know, a lot of traditions are from the diaspora. So you're doing your jambalaya. You're doing, you know, all types of things around just frying fish and, uh, you know, how we prepare our, ch- you know, just the traditions we know as black community are going to always follow us. So when you get to a new community, you're going to take whatever ingredients you have locally and make them work. Um, for me, I had un- un- great aunts and great, aunt- and, uh, great aunts and great uncles going to Detroit, going to um, uh, New York City, going to D.C., uh, a few folks going out L.A. We kind of, from what my parents told me, we kind of lost touch with them after they kind of left. Like they, they went out there and said, you know what? They we're on the West Coast. Far. You know, it's too far, man. That, that's every black family. Yeah. You have like that one yeah. cousin. Yeah. That they're like, they went to mm. California. We never saw them again. Right. That was it. You right, don't right, ever hear about right. your first trip to L.A. And they're like, oh, by the way, you got somebody out there that you've never heard of exactly, before. Like, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, even my, uh, like, for instance, like, I was originally born in L.A., moved back to North Carolina when I was one. My dad uh, worked for the FAA. He was an engineer. So even though my folks are obviously from North Carolina, his first job out of school, he was out in California, my mom, my brother, myself, um, out in South Central for a few years. But I think my dad was, like, between the gang culture and everything going on, we had to get back. Plus, you know, having kids, having the help of uh, my grandparents was also essential for them. But I think even them going out there, they saw the potential. My pops even opened a restaurant back in Charlotte based on the whole chicken and waffle concept. Wow. You know, so he was picking up on some things. I mean, heck, he even had a, a California curl, not a jerry curl, a California curl, <laughs> which is much different. You know, apparently the uh, the process as well as the heaviness of the with the solution is a little bit more. Well, you know, he had to represent his growth. Exactly. You know, he's like, exactly. I've been beyond <laughs> the boundaries of the jerry curl. Exactly. Like, see what I'm doing now. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think overall, Yoshi Jenkins, the story is more so just – how does a person go from the deep south out to L.A. during the time period where you find yourself dealing with, uh, you know, institutional racism? You know, your Japanese brothers are being in, in, in putting in the internment camps. You can't really find housing. You get thrown into this community that you don't really know much about the history. You're just like, I got a place to stay, you know, and being able to kind of create something out of nothing. And then eventually the group that was originally there come back with all their culture and traditions, and you find a way to make it work. I think that oftentimes communities are divided by race, but this is a good example of a community that literally was thriving, I think, off of race and diversity when it was um, completely immersed amongst all these different cultures. Um, you know, I can tell people all the time when it comes to cooking, I want the flavor that uh, represents, um, you know, uh, the intersection of race, you know, the diversity and the mix of people. That's the kind of flavor I want my food to, be, to taste like. You know, I think that's the best flavor because you're typically getting a meeting the minds, the best, the best of both worlds. You're getting almost, uh, you know, a salt and pepper, but also that gray area of flavors. Mm-hmm. You really just can't figure out what it is, but you know, like, yo, you brought something to this to this to this menu mm-hmm. that is showing up, and I love it. And I want to, you know, I want to, I want to kind of create that. So, yeah. I don't yeah, know, man. It's, it's like a rabbit hole. You know, it's a rabbit yeah. hole. You know, how far do you want to go down? I think originally it was very surfacey. I was trying to find things 
beyond uh, the U.S. But when I dig, when I dug some more, I found that in our own backyard, the story was there, and it was a lot to kind of just pull from as far as my own storytelling and um and uh, different directions I want to go with Yoshi. I mean, even though Bronzeville is, a, is the beginning and the origin of Yoshi, I think that the story in itself opens up all types of doors. You know, we can go to Hawaii and you know, talk mm-hmm. about Negro brothers and sisters out there and how they dealt with the intersection of just cultures that eventually showed up for, as far as Polynesian community, the Japanese community, the Koreans are out there as well. Um, and I mentioned Peru earlier, it's about folks down there. And even Brazil, I mean, there's a huge Japanese, I think actually the second largest uh, Japanese community in the world actually exists in Brazil. Think about that for a second, yeah, you know? Yeah. So yeah, largest population of Japanese people outside of Japan. And then, you know, you're right, the Japanese population in Peru yeah. is, is significant and is politically very powerful from what I understand too. Absolutely. Now, I, wanna, I gotta ask you this. I think I was headed with another question, mm-hmm. but um, it's kind of interesting, like the way you're talking about the way these communities came together in Brownsville under this joint pressure. Um, and then in the absence of that pressure is where you start to see them sort of start to drift apart, like you said, you know, easements in terms of like racist, you yeah, know, real yeah. estate policies and so on. Is oppression as an outside force a necessary component of this type of joining, this type of coming together? And if it's not, how do we start to accomplish it without that like how, where do we start like to get these connections between cultures mm. like let's how do we start to focus on that without having to well i'm getting crapped on and so i have to be stuck in this place and you're getting crapped on so you have to be stuck in this place so let's learn how to make the best out of this together how do we start to build those bridges without that initial trauma that's a great question i mean i find that the community probably has so much success because you're sharing uh, discriminatory experiences with another group of people. You know, you guys have felt the pain of discrimination. Um, obviously, we you know slavery was a big factor as far as our plight, but even for Japanese Americans, I mean, you think about, they literally were, their people were bombed, you know, in terms of uh, using nuclear weapons. Think about that for a second. You know, that's crazy. Not to mention you put in internment camps. I mean, I don't want to list the top atrocities as far as what's happening to people of color in the U.S., but between Native Americans, us, and the Japanese, we've gotten a really short stick, man, as far as the straw we drew. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, man. It's it's interesting that under these pressures and these forces, it led us to kind of be more creative and find a synergy amongst, uh, amongst uh, uh, each other. But I think replicating that in today's world, taking for what happened then, I almost feel like they found a commonality amongst each other. Like, look, we look different, but we're obviously here for similar reasons. I think in terms of applying that to a modern perspective, I don't know, man. Maybe we need to figure out a similar approach where we can find similarities. I mean, we're not that much different. We're not that much different anymore. You know, we have a lot of, I think all of us in a day want to have a, a good a good income, you know, take care of our families and uh, have a roof over our head. Beyond that, everything else is just noise. Um, the thing I love about food the most is that it really kind of breaks down barriers. It helps you kind of really just you know, uh, what's the word, uh, disarm people. You know, you can have conversations about things in ways that you never thought about, thought about before. Living in Portland, Oregon now, they have a huge appreciation for Nakai and Japanese culture um, on levels I never thought about, uh, I thought I would even have access to as far as libraries and um, just uh, cultural spaces per se. Going in there, having conversations with those folks, um, it's an instant love, instant connection. They're super eager to kind of help me understand more about just the history of Japanese Americans, maybe the overlap of uh, Black Americans as well, as far as intersection there. But I think it's just conversations, man. And honestly, through food, it's even easier because who doesn't like to eat? Right. You know, right. I mean, it's 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 
it's as much as I love cooking, I love conversation too. Mm-hmm. And I think that probably, it probably starts there. But that's a great question, man. I don't know. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of communities are based on uh, segregation or set up racially wise. You know, you have Polish folks over here, Japanese people over here. Like it's, it's unfortunate that way. But I think we can figure out a way to kind of just bring folks together, maybe around food. Maybe that's why Yoshinkas is here today. Maybe that's the next step for this. Maybe we need to have a big, big, I don't know, reunion, man. And bring out as many folks as possible. But yeah. I, I love the idea of a reunion. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I love that, you know, Yoshi Jenkins is this black and Japanese history on mm-hmm. a plate. Yeah. You know, how does that history fit into some of your recipes? And you talk about food in a way that as you're talking about it now, I'm like, oh, I can taste that. Yeah. But you know, you have this ponzu citrus slaw, jerk Cornish hen, yeah. and nori elote. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. No, you're saying it correctly. You're saying it correctly. So think about it this way. You know, when it comes to French cooking, they have their holy grail of ingredients. You know, you have uh, your mirepoix, which is typically onion, carrots, uh, you know, salt and pepper and garlic, you know, which is very basic, you know, very European. Uh, you think about the diaspora. That cooking is more based around ginger, shallots, uh, bird-eyed chilies, um, garlic, a little more, um, what's the word, uh, heat, and um, spice and flavor per se. When I think about Japanese culture and just, you know, the intersection of black culture, I think more so, okay, we like spice, we like heat, uh, we like aromatics. So you think about um, miso, you think about uh, ginger, um, you think about a sake, you know, Uh, what else, Uh, soy sauce, all those things that we obviously know and familiar with. It's literally like my, uh, I don't know, sandbox. And it's kind of throw them all together. Um, Being from the South, Okra pearls is a big deal for me. You know, that's something we ate a lot, you know, whether it be for a side dish or for a main dish, depending on what was going on. When I kind of examine this story more about Yoshi Jenkins, it's like, what would you bring to this neighborhood where it is historically Japanese? Black folks are coming up in here. What would they eat? So Japanese popular dish is black miso cod. You take some black cod, you marinate it in some miso, you either grill it, you can broil it, you can fry it, whatever you want to do for the most part. But basically, it's this nice caramelized fish texture and looks beautiful. Put that on top of some okra perlu, and you're all set to go. That's something I'm familiar with. I know growing up down south, doing some fried fish or grilled fish on some okra perlu, that's not something unfamiliar to me. So it's almost like you see connections, even though it might be named something different, taste slightly different. The similarities are already there. I mean, with the nori elote, I mean, nori is a big, big, big ingredient in Japanese culture as far as... Um, you know, whether it be for sushi or just in terms of a snack, um, per se. But if you take nori and you break down the texture into um, almost crumb-like, mm. you can almost create something where it's, um, I don't know, think about, uh, you know, if you wanted to do a breading on top of a fish or if you wanted to take some elote, dip it into the mayonnaise, um, throw in some lime juice, and then obviously roll it in a whole bed of, let's say, some cornbread, some uh, nori, uh, throw in some cilantro as well. But it gives a very just um, deep, rich flavor that's, uh, it tastes familiar, but also a little edgy as well. Um, but that's the whole thing about Yoshi, man. It's not, the goal is to have fun with the food, to play with the food. The idea is to kind of dig deep into what the possibilities are. You know, you're not really overthinking things. You're more so saying, like, look, it should be good. It should be vibrant. It should at the same time be familiar for the most part. Yeah, and you're um, taking people on sort of a journey. Yes. Yeah, the yeah. dishes. I and mean, you're the first person who ever had me eat okra. I mean, I'm a northerner, so yeah. okra yeah. is not something that when you're from Pennsylvania, you don't, me too. You don't yeah. eat okra. I mean, <laughs> okra is not a Philly staple. <laughs> but it was good. I get it. I get it. It was good. I mean, okra's culture, man. It's black culture. It's 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 one of those things where, I mean, growing up at my grandmother's house, literally she had a, an amazing kitchen garden. 
uh, which goes back to this whole idea of farm to table. In 1970, up until her death in like, I don't know, 2000, early 2000s, literally that was the most maintained, well-kept um, community uh, secret. Um, it was abundant. It was uh, diverse. I mean, literally it had all the elements of any garden that I would say in a, or any urban city in the city. Mm. But literally this garden fed, uh, fed all her grandkids, fed her boys, fed the community. I mean, she would have almost literally whole like baskets of just extra okra laying around. She would pickle it, fry it, uh, roast it, um, give folks, you know, extra, you know, bundles if she had leftovers. But for me, that was pretty much life. It was no situation of saying it's a food desert. There's no situation of saying that it's not accessible. Um, it was all there. Tomatoes, plums, peaches, uh, okra, uh, what else? Uh, squash, green beans, corn. I mean, watermelon. I pretty much took Jenkins' side of Yoshi and said, all right, we're taking all this Carolina roots and we're taking it into L.A. with us, into this neighborhood. And I guess the Yoshi side will figure out when we get there. But for the most part, the idea is to kind of make this intersection of just things that I'm familiar with. I know it's tradition in my family, but things that I know that uh, from research are popular dishes within the uh, Japanese community and Japanese culture. Um, I mean, that's the fun part about Yoshi. Like, it's a rabbit hole. You get to kind of dig as deep as you want. I mean, for me, it's almost like just peeling back layers and layers of an onion until I find out, you know, what kind of sticks and what I think works for the most part. And it's my perspective, which is the best part, you know? Yeah. yeah, it's interesting yeah. that you talk about like the the farm to table yeah. aspect, and you know that's so popular now that you go to these chefs' dinners and it's the nice long table, and people come out in these mm -hmm. like magical gardens almost, and right. they're eating these you know delicious meals. But um, you know, you've said like this is something that's just part of Black culture for forever. Honestly, it sounds yeah. like it's been a part of us probably since we've been in this country. Oh, for sure. I mean, the history of black culture, I mean, we can go even deeper. I mean, in the diaspora, you know, West Africa, Central Africa, I mean, it's a part of what we what we came from, who we were, you know, as much as they've, as, as much as forces that be have kind of broken us away from that, I feel like that we still have it uh, almost entrenched in our DNA. You know, you can't run from who you really are, what we were designed to be over thousands and thousands of years. Um, no matter where I go, whether I know you, whether we're family or not, it's just something uh, nostalgic and just, uh, what's the word? Um, I don't know, familiar. Being around folks and friends like yourselves and having a meal and sharing a meal, you know, it feels like home. It feels like it feels like community. Um, I think that's what I try to create with Yoshi is a sense of community, a sense of joy, a sense of uh, our village at that time and that place where we're having that meal for the most part. Um, you know, it's important, man. I mean, I think about even how... You know, every year we have a reunion in North Carolina. Uh, it's always a good time. My dad's side, the wood side, and all types of dishes are prepared. I mean, we have different types of meats, fish, you know, all the greens. You know, we have a homemade ice cream. You know, folks I haven't seen in forever literally showing up and just breaking bread. And it's almost like we, we're catching up in a way where we never missed a beat. Like, we might have seen each other for a few years, but we're picking up where we left off. I feel like Yoshi Jenkins is that same type of energy, you know, it's a sense of joy, a sense of um a sense of a happiness, a sense of a nostalgia, if you will. Yeah, and a lot yeah. of that is is definitely does come very much from your energy because I know yeah. whether we've seen each other yesterday or we haven't seen each other in a couple of months, I mean, every time we get together, it's you know, we pick up, it's like we we never left each other. It's yeah. one of the things we love about hanging with you so much. Yeah. But the other thing that I, I love so much about the Yoshi concept and the way we talked about it is really that 
it's it's location and history. It's dependence yeah. on history because history lends depth. Yes, you know it gives us a, a a sense of not only the moment in which we're experiencing it, but how how far it goes right, into right, right, right. you know other things. And we've talked about you know the history of mm-hmm. like especially the connections between African diaspora and Japanese culture. So you're yes. talking about Yasuke, the yeah, African yeah. man who became a, a samurai, yeah. or you know, if we're talking about Bronzeville, or even mm-hmm. the the level of support that went on between uh, African American Asian American communities during the civil rights yeah. and Black Power yeah. periods, out, mm-hmm. especially out there in the West. Um, but as we talk about history, uh, we see that African Americans were constantly sort of being written out of the food history of this country. Mm. You know, for example, there seems right now to be an effort to erase the legacy of slavery from the history of barbecue. Mm. You know, and few people know that James Hemings, who yep. was the brother of Sally Hemings and a slave to Thomas Jefferson, mm. was actually one of America's first world-class chefs. And then we see that outside of our community now, a lot of what we know as soul food mm-hmm. is simply listed as Southern. Yeah. So how important do you think it is that we fight to maintain our place in these stories? Um, and then what yeah. what do we what can the Yoshi concept do, especially as it expands our concept of what black food is or how far it can reach? What can it do to help in that? It's extremely important. I mean, look, man, uh, food is culture. Culture is history. Culture is education. Um, you know, the rewriting the, the, the story of how things came to be is a natural play most folks lean towards trying to make sure that they are at the top of the food chain. When it comes to barbecue, you cannot tell me that that was uninvited by us. I mean, it's factual, but on top of the fact that the flavors, the soulfulness, the techniques, I mean, barbecue and grilling, I mean, think about this. There's actually tribes and groups of people in West Africa that have centuries and thousands of years of history barbecuing. You know, when we were brought over here, those techniques didn't, 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 didn't escape us. You know, uh, we might have been working on a different type of meat, you know, as far as being in the region that we were in, as far as maybe some type of pork or, uh, you know, I don't know, turkey, whatever it is they might have had, you know. But but I think as far as the ability to be able to translate the skills that we have always had and developed within our culture, no matter what we were going through as far as the the atrocities we face, I think it's brilliant and amazing um, as far as the people. Um, it's funny right now, as far as the whole barbecue culture in America, specifically in the South, you know, you always see the top five barbecues in America, you know, five, top five, five, five barbecue pit masters in America. You might see one brother on that list, you know, uh, my guy, Rodney Scott, man, I never met the brother before, man, but to me, he is the standard when it comes to barbecue in terms of what I've been seeing and what, um, stories that I hear. Um, but folks like that, you know, need to be celebrated more. I mean, unfortunately for barbecue, it's become more of a legacy type of uh, cooking where you're learning from your father and you're learning from his father and his father being as far as passing down that skill set. Um, I may mean, hate to say this, but I feel like integration kind of blew up the cultural experiences that we held true to ourselves because it literally gave us opportunity to kind of pivot and do other things that weren't typically available in our in our in our in our deck of cards. You know, I mean, think about Bronzeville specifically. Even though it was amazing for what it was able to become, the reality is we had nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. So if you're kind of stuck in a situation where this is your only option, by default, you're going to make the most of that. And honestly, you're probably going to see the most, I don't know, amazing things occur just because it's a small bubble, but there's no other bubble options for us. So I think when it comes to barbecue or community or even cooking in general, for years before we integrated, it, we were able to kind of, you know, master it, uh, refine it, make it our own to where it was soulful, it was hip, it was black, unapologetically black. But I think since we kind of got away from that due to integration, 
you know, which obviously has its benefits as well. I mean, obviously, I'm going to be able to walk around the street in a neighborhood like this <laughs> about obviously being looked at sideways, which is debatable. But <laughs> I think, part. yeah, for the most <laughs> part. But yeah, absolutely, man. Today, and my dad will tell you this all the day. He was like, growing up, the only job I had when I was in college in the 70s was literally as a waiter or server. Mm-hmm. So when I told him I was going to food, he was like, what? Are you crazy? Like, come on, man. Like, you went to school, went to school of economics. Howard, like, Howard yeah, graduate like, here. You know, what are you doing here, you know? And I think for him, it was more so in the sense of that's all we had options for, you know, working in some type of job where it was a trade that really didn't give us any type of growth or economic growth per se, just that's all we had. So I think for his generation, it was looked more so as as the help mm-hmm. versus being able to be creative and be able to tell stories and being able to really manifest uh, some amazing storytelling through your cuisine and be able to be very successful economically as well as just lifestyle. Um, things would change. But yeah, I mean, look, man, if we don't write our history and tell our stories, over time, it'll be erased. The pride that my kids have now known their dad as a chef and, and doing what he loves is important for my household. But think about all the kids who might not have that same type of type of situation. They needed to know that we come from a place where, you know, as far as the cooking and the cuisine, the traditions we carry on to this day, even though some of them are disappearing, um, they go beyond just, you know, what you might see on TV and what's written. I mean, there's a deep, deep, deep legacy there that um, that's really important to convey and continue. Yeah. I love that you you know you talk about the legacy and your mm-hmm. little ones, yeah. Ellis and yeah. Zora, who are just gorgeous uh, little people. You know, as you're kind of thinking about your own legacy and the importance, like not only the story, but I know that in the food you create, you have a lot of focus on sustainability yeah. and health and wellness, which seems like it's very important. I think probably in all of our families, there are people that have the sugars yes. and people yes. that struggle with hypertension and all these issues because, you know, a lot of us either, a lot of our parents either grew up on, you know, yeah. food that was really great, but it wasn't really healthy for yeah. you. Um, or there are com- people in our community that are in these food deserts where you yeah. actually cannot find yeah. healthy things to eat. So how does that idea of sustainability and wellness fit into your concept? Yeah, I mean, I... I I mean, I grew up playing sports, um, very active lifestyle. Um, I know the direct correlation between eating well and being able to perform at a high level. Um, I think as a food enthusiast, as a chef, you have integrity. And integrity comes in a form of being responsible for what you serve people, what you deliver as far as in, in product. I get it. A lot of us have food brands and restaurants where the margins and the, and the, and the end result as far as making money is important. But... It starts with us, man. It starts with us making a conscious effort towards delivering a product that you know has an integrity has has integrity as far as how it's prepared, how it's handled. Um, I mean, it's important, man. I, you know, coming from the south, obviously obesity, um, diabetes is a very big issue um, in my own family and you know friends. You know, uh, it, it's it's a big deal. I think my cooking is more so about look. How do I be as social and as impactful as possible? Where it starts with me trying to deliver products that have that. So if we're gonna do, you know, if a, if a if a client wants a meat product per se, you know, they'll pay a little bit more for it. But I'm gonna source it from the best butcher shop in the area to kind of help them understand. Like, look, you're not just paying for, you know, just any old pig. You know, this pig, as far as his diet, had the best lifestyle known to man. As far as peanuts, apples, grapes, and cherries, he's probably eating better than some folks in the city right now. <laughs> you know, but the reality is, I mean, you. You get what you pay for, man. That's the reality situation. But 
I think we all need to take more effort in our own diet, you know, dietary choices, not to choose, you know, to say what you should be eating per se. But, well, let's back up and say this. I read an article recently saying we have to really reduce our consumption of meat by literally 90%. You know, this article terrifies Yeah, Brian. I, I don't you know. know. Okay. No, like, like, why are you bringing this up? Like, I know. You, you, we you can know. talk about it. You know, he's yeah. a vegetarian, yeah. so yeah. that's hard. That's, 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 that's scary to me. But, like, Brian, here's the thing, though. You don't have to stop eating meat. That's just, a good start. Just, just 90%. <laughs> Is 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 the goal? Think about each of us focus on that. So let's say, I mean, I don't want to say four times a month, but let's say you saved and sacrificed to not just eat meat every day, but to eat the best quality piece of meat you could ever have four times a month. Think about that for a second. I think I'm gonna have to like become yeah. vegan. Yeah, probably you, so you guys could get out, like yes. at least eight portions. Yes. A month, yeah. you know, you guys cut out sugar, mean, right? Sugar, yeah, we, so, we sugar, but see, that's the thing. I don't have a sweet tooth. Sugar was not a hit for me. I okay, didn't mind. Got it, got like it. sugar, sugar departed. And yeah. I didn't notice. Now, see, meat on the other hand, like got it. Mm, and I, I feel like this is not only for myself, but just for those around me. Like I would yeah. not be a good human being <laughs> if right, I could not right. eat. If I couldn't eat meat, You'd be in a bad like you wouldn't want to be around me. <laughs> like I come from the land of like cheesesteaks and hoagies. Right, if right. I can't, that, and that's not just meat. That's like macro meat. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I love meat. I love my fish. I, I love all, I, I love everything for the most part. But I do understand that we're consuming way too much of it. Um, I mean, yeah, North Carolina is known for like pork processing. I mean, yeah. as far as pig, I mean, we're, that's a big, we were a big producer of pork. Pork, yams, sweet potatoes, what else? Uh, it's a lot of varieties of Southern cooking, but pork in general is like our go-to, man. So mm -hmm. it's everywhere. You know, pulled pork, Carolina barbecue. I mean, dude, it's 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 culture. It's delicious, but we got to slow down, man. I mean, I want to leave the, the the planet a better place for my kids. You know, at some point, I want them to be able to kind of have, uh, you know, a better situation than 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 what I had. And at this point, we got to cut it down. I mean, honestly, maybe it's just eating less beef. Yeah. I mean, think about. I mean, I don't know what the actual numbers are, but I think beef, as far as just uh, agriculture around that in itself, is takes a huge amount of acreage yeah you know think about how much uh carbon they're um uh monoxide they're producing is it carbon yeah. monoxide make sure yeah i don't know yeah, that's I think the it term, is carbon. They, they the thing is it's yeah. i mean it, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like so many things we're seeing now is like there's um it's also just a process yeah like, there's so much yes. waste in the process yeah that if we just like applied the intel the intellect to streamlining and optimizing the process yeah you know, then we wouldn't find but then it's about people wanting to invest in making that the best thing they could but all right so interesting enough coming off of that um in making those good food choices and at the same time talking about the way we're talking about bronze world coming out of a situation where people didn't really have a choice at the time yeah we have to acknowledge the ways in which food is often used as a weapon yeah specifically against our community absolutely and so you know you see that from you know your food deserts where there's absolutely nothing to eat mm -hmm. i mean we actually had a friend who told us that when they were growing up in the bronx you know there were so few restaurants that people would just cook in their kitchens. Yeah. And they just make plates. People yeah. would come in, yeah. buy a plate, and that was the restaurant that you had. Yep. Um, we're probably to, more of that, actually. Yeah. You know, actually, you know, <laughs> it does sound like it's got some upshots to yeah, it. But, yeah, you know, yeah. but that was the extent of the food desert that they were in. Yeah. Then, you know, fast food, the, you know, heart disease, diabetes, right. everything that comes off of that. Right. And then by the time com our communities do start to see good stores and good food come in, mm -hmm. it's mostly a foothold for gentrification, yep. pricing out the community yeah. and letting you yeah. know essentially that yeah. your time in your neighborhood is, is now close to expiring. Right, right, right. right. So, the question then, I guess, becomes what can black chefs, like, to what extent is there a responsibility to do something about that 
and what can be done? And what do you feel, you know, um, as black people who not only, you know, we all cook, but to those of us who, you know, as you do, have a, a relationship with food and the food industry and an expertise in it that exceeds what most of us would have. Yeah. You know, what then is the, the what are the steps and the responsibilities there? I think it starts today by just supporting black restaurants that exist as we speak. I mean, they're there. I mean, there's some good spots in bed There's some good spots in Brown Heights. You know, there are a few good spots in East New York. I mean, they're around. I mean, even Harlem. I mean, Harlem's blown up. And then obviously it's blown up at the expense of housing prices going up, justification per se. But there are good restaurants there way before it became what it became um, present day. But yeah, I think it starts there, just supporting what we already have. I also want to say that we're so quick to blow up and want to call out certain brands for doing uh, insensitive marketing with their products or retail brands, whether it be a Gucci or, you know, I'm sure there have been a few examples of that lately. But we don't do the same type of energy or we don't apply the same type of energy towards food experiences or food food deserts, per se. I mean, we, 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 we talk about it, but the folks that should really be yelling about it are the same folks who aren't doing it. They're the ones posting on more, thing, on more things that doesn't really directly affect you at all. What affects you is what's on your corner, the bodega, what they're carrying, you know. Why is the uh, grocery mart not selling any uh, produce that doesn't have brown, you know, rot on it or whatever, you know. Um, I mean, heck, when I first came to New York City in 2009, I was really big on trying to be involved, you know, community development, economic development. That was like my, you know, my play. When I first met you guys, I was actually working for the New York City Economic Deve Development Corporation on a program around food deserts. So we went up to the Bronx Food Terminal, kind of saw that whole process. He saw what was coming in, the supply chain, the food chain, you know, uh, food ways per se. Um, you saw the different tiers, you know, tier one was the best of the best, you know, some of the best restaurants in the city. Their chefs and scouts were out there getting that, you know, paying top dollar. And then tier two was kind of like, okay, you know, it's not, you know, premium, but it'll do. And then tier three, I mean, look, man, they're spraying this stuff or they're putting things on some of this food to preserve it. Call it what you want to call it, but it's coming at the expense of folks in certain neighborhoods eating it. When you see that happening, you makes you question very quickly, like, dang, what am I doing here? This is clearly not the way it should be. But the reality is, how do you feed a group of people that might have a lower income, can't afford access to certain things? I mean, they still need it, but where's the integrity? For me, it starts locally, man. There are a lot of cool neighborhood community gardens around here that are doing some cool things as far as educating the youth. Um, there's some great food, um, uh, what is it? Uh, the food share programs, the food cooperatives mm. that are popping up more and more neighborhoods. Unfortunately, the better ones, obviously, in the park slopes and the, you know, areas that are, you know, more expensive, but they're slowly showing up. We need more of those, man. We need more food, um, food ambassadors, man. They're really kind of pushing that narrative. Um, I mean, they're out there, but we need more of that. And honestly, it's probably going to take a whole new generation of folks just kind of understanding what to eat, what not to eat. I mean, mm. you grew up on what you're eating. That's what you know. I mean, it's almost like breathing air you just buy what you're used to eating and you don't really think anything of it you do feel the impact but you don't really know until it's too late and that's sad but i see the kids man the kids benefiting the most from what's happening now as far as food education um programming showing up in schools now that might be helping them out than what we had i mean hell, when i was in junior high elementary there was literally a vending machine for a coke Sweet tea, whatever you wanted, it was there. You know, if you had fifty cents, twenty five cents, a nickel, whatever, not a nickel. His school oh, in Philly, yeah, you can so, talk that. When yeah. I was in uh, my high school, right, yeah. we didn't have a cafeteria. 
Oh, wow. But uh, what they did have was a couple of blocks away, mm -hmm. there was a McDonald's and there was a Pizza Hut. Wow. So every day when we would go downstairs for lunch, mm -hmm. you know, they would have gone to one or the other. You know, yeah. um, so and they would buy like a ton of McDonald's, yeah, and then they would sell it to us at like wow. so for like five dollars. I would yeah. like a Big Mac, a quarter pounder, six nuggets, and some fries, yeah, yeah. And I would just kill that. They're just uh, handing out, <laughs> <the diabetes. laughs> they're like handing the diabetes, <laughs> yeah, directly right, right. at, at the, the time. Yeah. I, I can't say like I, I wasn't mad at it at mm -hmm. the time, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. But now looking back, I'm kind of like, yeah, my life's probably gonna be about three years shorter because of that. <laughs> but you, but you probably were active then as well, more out, you were outside more often, we didn't mm -hmm. have as much uh you know you weren't sitting around playing I mean, yeah, you were more... my, my high school was um it was what we called in philly a magnet school it was an engineering yeah, high school yeah, yeah, yeah. but it was built like a prison got it got <laughs> so it, got there it. was just one large ugly brown building yeah a concrete uh yard and it was surrounded by like giant chain link fence the same developer got the contract for the prison got the contract for the school right, as well like can you right. do both of us for a two for one day right, two for one yeah. <laughs> you know like in the middle of west philly right so yeah active not at recent. There was really nothing to do. Yeah. Just kind of stood around. Yeah. And outside, they actually had a, a a food truck where a guy yeah. was just handing out candies and and hot dogs. And right, right, like right, so, right, right. Yeah, but I hope I'm more active now because I got things to make up for. I mean, I'll I'll say this, man. I think look, there's a lot of information out there now to help folks kind of just turn that turn that page as far as finding more of a healthier eating lifestyle. Uh, it is showing up more and more and more neighborhoods as far as access. A lot more work needs to be done, but the information definitely is out there. I mean, we all got phones. Mm. You know, yeah. folks always say like, man, you know, so-and-so in the neighborhood. We got libraries too. You know, like, come on, brother. Like, it's not, look, for Bronzeville to be what it was at the time and have all these businesses pop up in four years, basically out of nowhere, out of thin air, tells me that not only there was a sense of just pride and ingenuity, but just innovation, just work with what you got. I think that's just what you can spear. It's like, look, man, at the end of the day, I don't have all the answers. I'm still researching and figuring this, this story out, but I think it's a cool baseline as far as saying you have two amazing cultures coming together in very weird and unfortunate circumstances, but they made the most out of it. And I think that um, even after the peak of the community, as far as Bronzeville started to kind of fade away, there was still a synergy there, a camaraderie, a, a humanity, um, uh, I don't know, an empathy that I think more neighborhoods should try to just find and, 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 and replicate, if you will, yeah. you know? I mean, oh, sorry, I was gonna, oh, no, I gotta no, jump no. in, but yeah. I was gonna say, you know, one, I think, you know, the Yoshi Jenkins concept, like we, I remember when you first came up with it and you told yeah. us about it and I was like, that's, that's amazing. Like, yeah. it's so amazing on so many levels. I have not heard of a food concept before that really takes in history, yeah. the way that you take it in and, and just, you know, actually educates us as black people on a yeah. part of our own history that we didn't even realize exists. Um, many of us didn't realize exists. So as an as a black chef, um, there's so many discussions now about representation, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. where are we in all these yeah. different fields? Yeah. Do you feel that there is there a lack of representation in the world of chefs? And do you feel a need to defend your space as, right. a, as a black chef right, in right. any way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a huge void of of, of us uh, out there in the uh, the food world. I mean, I mean that's why it's so important for the media brands and uh, food brands to really kind of make sure our narratives are, are are not only told, but there's folks in those positions to tell our stories. Um, you know, fortunate for me, I was I came at a time where 
cooking and being in the food world is better than it's ever been, relatively speaking. You know, the Nina Comptons, the um, uh, the Chef JJ's, uh, you know, Alexander Small, Chef BJ Dennis, these are all uh, amazing food uh, creatives in their own right that I was able to kind of just build off of and use as inspiration. Um, I know for a fact a lot of those guys probably didn't have that type of um, mentor or peers in their portfolio when they were coming up. So I would say it's improved a lot. The diaspora is alive and in a well more than ever. I would say that. But there's a lot more work to be done, especially when it comes to food. I mean, we're really the tip of the iceberg when it comes to storytelling. Um, the best advice I ever got when I first got into food back in, I guess, maybe around 2010, um, was from a gentleman by the name of Anasio, who's now like a uh, style influencer, if you will. But he's, he was a chef for a long time before he got into to, to modeling. He was like, man, look, be a chef, but be more than a chef. You know, tell stories, tell your story, tell the folks stories. That's community, that's really bringing people together. You know, they would, not only you're educating folks, but you're educating yourself, you're understanding what kind of came before you. I think with Yoshi Jenkins, the idea is, how do you tell stories through food, um, using Bronzeville as a baseline and kind of working our way out from there. Um, but it's more important than ever. I mean, I think that brands, media, I think they want to pick up on these stories, but they're they're fleeting, you know, and you want to make sure the story's right too. So even for myself, I mean, I've kind of taken my time with the brand just in the sense of I wanted to make sure it was tight, it was uh, it was factual as far as the origins, but even the direction of it, I wanted to make sure that it was uh, impactful, you know, in some form or fashion. Um, but yeah, I don't always want out here just making meals. I mean, I want to make sure that the food is sustainable. I want to make sure that the stories are uh, stories that are uh, relatable, um, and they kind of tell you, you know, uh, uh, the history of America and beyond. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, honestly, that's black culture in general, right? Stories. That's what. That's all we kind of. Yeah. yeah, you know, and just kind of using that, um, you know, that storytelling ability, like the narrative aspect of food that yeah. you know we don't really think about when you, you know, like pop into, you know, a restaurant or if you just whipping something up at home, you don't really necessarily think right, about that. Right. And then having the opportunity to show how culture works through right. this way. Right. Um, especially with regard to the diaspora, you know, yeah. because, you know, in a position where, you know, the basis of diaspora being so much like the the distinction between the political goals mm-hmm. of different cultures and mm-hmm. different parts mm-hmm. of it, um, culture um, becomes a part where we can actually come together yeah you know the yeah. in food being as you mentioned earlier yeah. a major part of that yeah um but i think i have one last question which is just it's almost a reverse of something that we talked about before in terms of uh narrative and perspective in the sense that food you know kind of like music like fashion you know like there are some places where we're expected to be seen mm-hmm. you know there are some places yeah. where black perspectives are you know they're anticipated you know, and it's almost, I don't want to say necessarily just allowed, but mm-hmm. it's its where you expect to find them. So things like fashion, music, food, you know, especially with regard to things like soul food, Caribbean, you know, Jamaican food, so on. You know, people know that there are those flavors out there, so on. Whereas at the same time, if we talk about other disciplines, things like architecture or design, mm-hmm. um, there's a people balk at that notion that there mm-hmm. is such a thing as black architecture, that there is such a thing as black design. Um, now, in your opinion, does one presuppose the other? If you have black food, if you have black music, if you have, would you perforce have, you know, black design, black architecture? Um, 
why do you think that one is acceptable and the other is not? And often even to ourselves, where we will ourselves rebel at the idea of seeing our, our, our culture expressed in these areas mm. that, we, that we're not expected to be in. That's a great question. I mean, I think we've been conditioned to think that we only have certain instruments we can play with, quote unquote, as mm -hmm. far as instruments. I mean, more so in the symbolism of just um, our lane is our lane. This is what you guys do really well. You dance, you cook, you sing. I mean, beyond that, you don't really have a lane in that area. And I think obviously most of us know that's not true, but we've been painted a very marginal, narrow canvas uh, or just picture man that um that has us kind of just doubting our own culture, you know, doubting our own abilities per se. Um, I mean, the reality is black culture is not some monolithic, just, you know, existence. We are diverse as the world, you know? Um, you know, we, we are everywhere in all, in all types of realms, you know, realms. Um, we do, we, you know, science, uh, design, uh, architecture. Um, I mean, some of the hottest freaking architecture in Africa right now is, has been created by a black architect. I can't think of his name. Um, David Ajay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, think about that for a second. I mean, but these stories, are, like you said, need to be told, need to be shared more, need to be told on the mainstream. Um, I mean, we all know the media, man. The media is run by folks who are telling their story. You know, the biggest PR machine, unfortunately, has not been very friendly and kind to us. Um, what the work that you guys are doing is really important because we need more PR and more stories that represent us. I mean, even this platform right now, you guys have a variety of different um, uh, creatives from their own in their own fields that are being able to kind of shape and carve their own path. Hearing more about that reminds us that and, and reinforces the notion that we're everywhere doing a beautiful work in our own right. You know, there's a reason why the culture has been implemented. I mean, implemented, but uh, it's been tried to be copied, replicated, you know, monetized, uh, and so forth. But no, it's it's for us to continue to be and grow and be great. We need to have those stories out there. And I think it's very easy for us to kind of write, a, write us off as not being able to navigate those areas you just mentioned mm -hmm. because we don't really see it. We don't really hear about it. I mean, you think about black billionaires, you ask any person on the street, oh, Jay-Z, you know? But mm -hmm. there's actually folks out there that were billionaires before Jay-Z. There's actually folks out there that were able to kind of create wealth in realms beyond music. There's actually folks out there that have been able to create wealth in, in areas that you never even imagined. You know, when I was working for the city back in the day, um, when I got past my first project working with, uh, oh my gosh, uh, doing the um, food deserts, the next thing was trying to find more uh, minority vendors, but not just any minority vendor. They were looking for a minority vendor that did uh, had a company doing underwater welding. <laughs> Think about that for a second. Underwater welding. So literally, you had to have find a brother or some brothers. They literally had sweat, you know, wetsuits, gear, scuba gear, scuba gear <laughs> yeah. welding gear, welding, you know, yeah. boats, you know, equipment, you know, like they they were looking for that to do some work in the Hudson River. Mm. And I was like, we ain't gonna find our brothers to do underwater <laughs> welding. Long and behold, we found a dude. Okay, <laughs> you know, and this guy literally was like, you know, we 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 specialize in this and that, but we found him. And literally he was like, Yeah, this is generational, we've been doing it for a while. Wow. Um so things like that make you realize very quickly, like, dang, man, it's very unfortunate that we get painted a very narrow brush. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. one of the things that yeah. started us with Afro Chic was the yeah. idea that we wanted to showcase the presence of black people in design. And yeah. what we started to realize was that, you know, it, it wasn't a question of a lack of presence so much as it was a lack of representation. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, kind of trying to, to tell that story mm -hmm. and kind of change that narrative. So I guess coming off of that, it becomes how do we use 
the places where we have that cachet right mm-hmm. now, like, mm-hmm. you know, like food, yeah, you know, to yeah. expand in that, you know, again, one story up, right? Yeah. I'm trying yeah. to build up. So how do we use that to, uh, to kind of wedge those spaces open? Like, yeah. can we combine food and architecture? Can we do, you know, like, you know, music and underwater welding? Yeah. Like, how do we, we start to bring those together? Well, think about it right now. I mean, most of the development going on in cities is our communal spaces. Um, around food halls. I mean, real estate is very expensive. You know, most food brands can't really afford the real estate per se. Developers are realizing more and more I can get a lot more foot traffic and a lot more um, quality of life by creating these uh, mega mega sites where you have different um, experiential food establishments in there. Um, obviously, the way these build-outs are being done has to kind of reflect some sort of um, design component, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite stories comes from the folks who have done, um, oh my God, what's the food uh, food event outside on the waterfront down in Dumbo and um, uh, Williamsburg? Uh, Time out? No, 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 the big outdoor event, uh, Smorgasbord. Smorgasbord. Yeah. Okay. So they got smart, man. They eventually took the brand and created basically physical spaces where they obviously had this space. They created a beer garden, but they set up literally individual spaces for food brands to come in there and set up their shop. Oh, thank you. Um, for them to kind of think outside the box in creating that to where the space is still a meetup for food experiences, but the design around that uh, is pretty impressive. Um, I think design, man, look, man, design has applications in everything from how we package the food to how we design the spaces you, you consume it to even how, uh, you know, you, 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 you experience it per se. Um, it shows up everywhere. And honestly, you eat with your eyes. You know, you eat with your smell, you eat with your ears, you know, what's around, what's what's happening around you while you're actually consuming the, the dish. The dish is only 10% of the experience. I think the other 90% literally is what you're seeing, what you're tasting, what's the layout, you know. You go into some of these spaces nowadays as far as restaurants are really swanky and like modern. I mean, you're, really, you're pretty much paying $80 a person because you're there for the vibe, right? Mm-hmm. I think our vibe is the coolest vibe. You know, I might, I might be a little biased because I'm black, but whatever. Um, but that being said, I think that... Um, Obviously, our culture is integrated into everything. Out there, people take it, you know, steal it, use it for their own good. I think, as far as design, we're just we're at the tip of the iceberg as far as what could be out there in terms of like uh, designing food spaces that literally could just hit all your senses. Old school, new school, the future. You know, what does the black future look like? Let's create a food 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 space that really kind of celebrates that. Of all the recipes and dishes you've mm-hmm. created, yeah, you know, what's your favorite? What's the one that means the the most to you? Let's see. What is my favorite recipe that I've created? Hmm. Bacon probably, jam. Well, the bacon jam's legit. <laughs> bacon jam's legit. Bacon got a little expensive on me, though, so it became hard to uh, keep going. But it's, it's still in my portfolio. Um, uh, one of my favorite things in Japanese culture is gyoza, which is basically Japanese dumplings. Um, we do an oxtail dumpling. Uh, which is basically all the elements of oxtail you grew up eating, you know. Um, but we basically prepare it the same way you would typically have in any West Indian restaurant, um, whether it be in Crown Heights or in Bed-Stuy. And we make our own beetroot oxtail, I mean beetroot gyoza, which is literally taking um, a typical dumpling dumpling mixture, taking some roasted beets, pureed, mixing it in there. So it's literally a purple beet, but now it's a purple uh, dumpling. And then we fold an oxtail and we cook it that way. That's probably my number one favorite just in terms of the creativity around it and just uh, the, the, the flavor. Um, but beyond that, I definitely would have to say the uh, miso black cod with okra perlu. 
It's a dish that's very familiar. Grew up eating perlu all the time as far as okra perlu. Our grandmother grew okra, so we had fresh okra every summer. Um, it feels very nostalgic, very familiar. And honestly, I feel like I really do believe that's a dish that would, would have been brought by black folks coming from the Deep South out to Bronzeville or out to L.A. at the time when they were coming out there trying to find jobs and opportunity. Um, it's like there's a famous book called The Things They Carried, which docu- 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 documents uh, the war. But this is more so about the things they carried when they migrated out west, like what kind of traditions and flavors they, did they bring with them. Um, and I, I would think okra pearl would probably be a big one. You know, that's the type of food I would want to cook and eat and celebrate because one is delicious, but two is familiar. But and three, everybody loves a rice dish. Come on, man. Come on. <laughs> come on. You know. All right. All right. So we like to end our interviews here. Unfortunately, we're coming like to the end of our time. Oh, man, but, I was warming up, man. Right, right. Like we could do this. You know, we we have done this all day. But yeah. uh we like to end it with something we call the A-list. Okay. Which for us is, you know, activism, action, ascension, just anything positive that's going on out there. So okay. is there, So is there any one person, group, organization out there doing work that you think we all should know about that you think they're on your A-list? Yeah, I want to shout out Dine. Diaspora, Dine Diaspora. They're based out of D.C., surrounded by three dynamic uh, women uh, from West Africa. Um, they're doing some really cool uh, storytelling through food, um, capturing the diaspora through events, pop-ups, um, interviews, uh, dinner parties. Um, we'll love to work with them one day, but I've been following them for years, and they've consistent. Their uh, quality works really good. They've typically had a lot of the chefs that I admire, come through their ranks. Um, it's an example of a food way that I think we need to have more of that gives a platform for people of color of the diaspora to tell their story through food. Yeah. All right. All right. So thank you, Rashad. And you will check out Chef Frazier and his delicious delicious recipes at Yoshi Jenkins yes. on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And be sure to follow us at AfroChic and uh, hashtag one story up for more discussions on food, art, culture, and whatever else we can think of. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, guys. All right, thanks.